Hello and welcome to the 14th podcast of Edition VFO. My name is David Kellett and I will be speaking to Valid Beshti today. Valid Beshti is joining us from Los Angeles. The artist conceived 60 unique works that consist of US $1 bills printed upon with lithographic glue and then hand polished with gold bronze. Hi Valid, I would like to start with the first question concerning the notion of transparency and the, the context of production of works, which is always included within the name, within the works. Um, can you elaborate how you came up with this practice and if it is also a practice that goes through all of your work? It, it depends on how you mean transparency. I mean, I think I've used that as a shorthand in other circumstances, but really as a way to describe um, the decision not to conceal certain elements of a practice. So it's, it's really more passive than it is an active pursuit of transparency for its own ends. So I wouldn't really say, so what I would choose is that lesser claim is that I choose not to conceal when it's possible and that I don't actively pursue transparency for its own sake, either as an aesthetic or political ideal, because transparency in and of itself can operate um, both to allow access, but it also can obfuscate. It also can overwhelm or conceal Radical transparency can make things quite unclear. Um, you only have to think of, say, within the legal system, you know, when you have a discovery process, it's quite common to do what they call a document dump, and they overwhelm the opposition with too much information. And I think that in a lot of cases, bureaucracies state governments tend to hide behind a certain level of transparency at points um, over explanation. Or if you think about those contracts that you get when you decide to use an Apple product, I agree to these terms and conditions. They're so impossibly long and descriptive that, that not only are you uncertain if you actually read them exactly what they're saying, because they're so meticulous at describing them. But they also are of such a length that one is encumbered in their daily life. So that's a form of transparency that's actually obfuscation or a discouragement to um, understand what, in that instance, what contractual relationship you're getting into with another entity. So for me, I think the idea of transparency was a way to acknowledge that there's a whole network of systems that go into producing an artwork. And a lot of times that is if not covered up, then just unmentioned and excised from the art experience. 
So you don't think about the art handlers. You don't think about the registrar. You don't think about all of these people that are sort of involved as a support people and institutions, humans and non-human actors that are involved in supporting the work of art and, and bringing it to a site where a public can access it. And it was a certain type of transparency or lack of concealment was a way to acknowledge that larger world, right? To say that an art space is connected to the world, connected to real forms of labor, collected to a vast network of human beings that have to get together to decide to make something public and support it. And it was just a way to not fully explain all of that, but at least acknowledge it in the site of exhibition. And so on one hand, it was just acknowledging that larger network of support that's required. And I think uh, on the other hand, it also was a way to be honest that things are just things, you know, that art objects are just things that are used in a certain way. They don't have a special status as object, as an object. They, they simply are an object that's designed to be understood within a certain contextual frame. And, but that doesn't mean you need to mystify or conceal where it came from. And to treat them or describe them in the same way you would describe something a bit more mundane. Is it also then, you would say, a form of deconstruction? Because on the one hand, through like taking away these concealed things, it's a dialectical way of kind of taking away this fetish character of the artwork. Because on, I mean, in just presenting the work itself in a white cube and taking away all of these things, um, these works are being kind of fetishized. But I wouldn't describe it as deconstruction or taking away. I'm just choosing not to add it. Like, do you know what I mean? If you, if you make a soup and you don't add peppers, are you taking them away or... Are you just not adding them <laughs> or whatever? Do you know what I mean? It's like, I, I don't think of it as a grand gesture of decon de deconstruction or something that raises, rises to the level of some sort of, and I, and I have a problem with deconstruction in the sense that there's a kind of heroic, the heroic critic <laughs> like figure that gets constructed in that. And I'm more, there's a bit more passivity in it. Um, and I would say it's just a decision not to, I'm not terribly interested in that mythology or the, and I'm not terribly interested in the unique artistic creator as a model. And so I just don't use that model. I don't, I just don't, I don't want to, as much as possible, I don't want to affirm it. So I just choose kind of not to do certain things. But I see it as less um, 
I see it as less active. It's not like I'm seeking out something to reveal. It's more, again, I would say, choosing not to conceal. You were mentioning the artist figure and a lot of the things that you explained also are about the movement of the works. You mentioned registrars, you mentioned art handlers, other people involved in the system. So turning to us as an institution, which, I mean, we are called Institution for Original Printmaking. So there is this whole idea about originality versus reproduction. And I mean, when we talked And I approached you for a proposal for an edition and you replied that in your practice there is no such thing like an edition. So for me, it would be interesting to see uh, because both like originality and reproduction come very often side by side uh, in, in your work. And how do you relate to those approaches and also because it is really for, for us a novelty or interesting. Why do you refrain from signing artwork? Because I think it's also like our first work on paper that we have not signed within the last 73 years. I wish I had a good reason for saying why I don't sign artworks. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, of course you sign contracts. And I will sign contracts, but with artworks, it's more, um, you know, the mechanism for certifying that it is a work is for it to get an inventory number and for it to agree with the ledger on my side. And I don't know how terribly interesting that is, but it allows us to be aware when things are in circulation. It it um, provides a bit more. My authorial certification of a thing, I don't really see as, you know, it almost seems like garnish at this point, the artist's signature. And I don't know how, you know, as, as a strategy to confer uniqueness upon a thing, um, There's, so there's other mechanisms for certification that we do use, you know, to say this is where it came from and also to say where it went after, you know, wherever it came from. And the date and everything is sort of embedded within that, that number, um, that, that inventory number. So I think a lot of the information is just built into that. Um, but the, the signature itself never seemed to me You know, it's a kind of fetish element of the artwork that I don't have strong feelings about other than I don't find it terribly necessary. And um, I don't know exactly other than it, it doesn't clearly represent the type of certification that I use. So it doesn't seem useful in that regard. And then the other element is then you have to figure out where do you put the signature and it becomes a graphic element of the work, the signature. And there's something about the fetishizing the artist's hand, which again, I don't have a problem with and I'm not against signatures in general, but a signature is a graphic component that 
doesn't necessarily need to be in everything, you know, like, uh, I, I see it, it, it means something and you have to kind of acknowledge what it means and it's a part of the work. So it speaks about a certain attitude toward the work, um, the signature. It's like, I've done a quality. It's kind of like when you get a shirt and it says inspected by number 42. Well, I prefer that because it is my studio that validates it. It's not just about me. It's about those structures around me that allow my work to become public. And they're really a certification process. So I suppose that's that's sort of what it's about. It also becomes logistically difficult, you know, like you pro- I produce something with you in Zurich. Then you have to send it back to me so that I sign all of them? Like that's that's weird. We can just certify that they're they are works and then it fits into a whole history based on the number, the inventory numbers associated with it and that history is really what you're looking for. But it is a conceptual choice on, on your end. But maybe, again, it's a passive choice. It's an, I chose not to do it, which is just choosing, it's just, it's just a decision not to do an action, not as strong as the decision to do an action. Because all of those certifications have to happen anyway. Artist signature alone isn't enough, you know. So, so then why is it there? It's kind of like uh, the appendix or something. It's sort of been evolutionarily. It's kind of, you know, it doesn't really seem to serve a function. And then the performative way that artists sign work and how they sign it, you immediately attribute some meaning to those things. And it's I don't know. I find that all kind of irritating but and these terms of originality and reproduction in a way how do you see these i mean you work in photography on one hand in many other media too like also in terms or in the discussion we had or your new work with money or with bills well i mean reproduction so i don't think there's anything that's truly a reproduction in the sense that it's non-unique I think every every mass-produced object has a history specific to itself, even, and in most cases, that specific history is just repressed. Like you buy a box of cereal at the supermarket, a box of Cheerios. It has a different history than the box of Cheerios right next to it. And it has a different history than the box of Cheerios I might buy in Los Angeles and that someone might buy in New York. They come from different factories. They have a whole different process behind them. It's just that the object itself is deci- designed to conceal that those different histories, the different people involved in it, the specificities that it has. So they chose choose to make it uniform. Now, where what the hell was I talking about by talking about that? I I think that all all things, the notion of a reproduction is a hypothetical. It's kind of like the word image, you know, it's a, it, nothing is purely reproduced. 
nothing is really in reproduction. It's always in production. You can't really reproduce something as in fully simulate the conditions of the production of a thing, right? It's a new instance of production. And, um, and furthermore, the notion of an original is suspect as well, because you're staging it as a hierarchical relationship within, between it and other manifestations of that thing. I like to draw attention to the uniqueness of objects in terms of their material history and allow that history to be on the table. And when you speak about something as a reproduction or even an addition, you create a false premise that they're all identical. And they're not. There's specificity to things. So I think that, um, again, it's about not using a term that I creates, I think creates a false expectation or a false premise. And, and to me, the specificity of things, their connection to their own histories and their networks of production and their lives, you know, the life of things. Not that I think things have lives. We give them life, right? But they have a, a trajectory of human investment in them that I think makes them significant. All objects kind of are ritual objects. The group gives them meaning. The object itself doesn't really have meaning until a group gives them meaning. And a group or a group of users make that object significant and unique in the sense that it has a history. And I want to step back. I said significant and unique. It might not, it might not be a meaningful significance, which is a oxymoron. It might not reach the level of a significant distinction, but it's still present and could become significant, right? Like when you find out that there is a bad batch of Cheerios out there, the difference between Cheerio boxes made in one factory and another becomes important because some of them are, are bad boxes. So then the specificity of that object becomes significant, right? Whereas you could look at one compared to another and say, this difference isn't significant. So difference is always dependent on perspective and, and, or, or, or the frame of reference that you're using. And one can't predict, predict necessarily what forms of difference are important. But the way that you approach a thing structures ideas of difference, right? And structures ideas of similarity. And I think those are active choices. And I think it's important to make them active choices in terms of how you group things and exclude other things. And that gets into a political question of inclusions and exclusions, 
right? So when you're talking about objects, it's not as loaded. But when you're talking about people and and the political mechanisms of inclusion and exclusion, that starts to have real stakes. Um, you know, th- that's how human suffering is produced, power is maintained, and things like that. And I think it's a continuous, I'm not saying it's the same thing, but it's a continuous element of the way that we tend to think about things, is we erase difference between a certain class or group of things, and we overemphasize difference with other types of things. And usually there's a reason behind that, right? The reason in Cheerios is so that a corporation can, can, can guarantee you a certain kind of reliability of product, alleviate customer anxiety, and also not remind you that there are people working really hard to make your breakfast cereal and that they're toiling away in some factory sealing box after box. You don't want to remember that. So it's in the interest of the commodity to erase distinctions between things. It's in the interest of nation states to overemphasize the difference between citizens and non-citizens, to to create a different way of looking at the refugee or the illegal worker and make them seem very other, and to create a false uniformity to the group that is the citizen and a false difference between the citizen subject and those who are not a citizen to exoticize them. So I think the leveraging of difference and distinction is important. And I, I think about that when I'm doing things, not that this signature thing really tackles this whole area, but it does fit into a larger sort of attitude that I have about how I think through things. And the meaning of money, for example, the the common understanding of value exchange or also the symbolic exchange. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I guess, you know, you had mentioned being interested in or wanting to ask me about my thought process about money and why I'm interested in the bills, not just the abstract concept money, but why I'm interested in, in bills themselves is, you know, I mean, it's, it's manifold. I mean, first that we're carrying around these portable printed artworks in our pockets, which is kind of funny, like they're prints, you know, they're very meticulously made prints, right? So they're aesthetic objects. They tend to play with some uh, a set of interesting graphic questions um, using trompe l'oeil and recessional space and bas relief in various forms. I also think that when you look at the difference between currencies, if you look at the euro, you look at the Swiss franc, You look at the American, the U.S. dollar. Um, they represent very different ideas about the state. They represent very different ideas about what the state means to its subjects. 
the state's conception of itself. Um, for example, the Swiss money, it's all kind of like now, I mean, there's not even people on it, right? It's these hands. It's this kind of democratic social utopia kind of idea, right? It's, uh, these floating shapes. It's an acknowledgement of science and culture and all of these things that sort of fall under the umbrella of a notion of the common good, right? It's very social democratic in this way. You look at American money, it's columns, it's screaming eagles, it's these, um, you know, uh, just heads of great men looking great, <laughs> you know, lots of barriers and, and um, architectural facades built into the money, you know, a very different idea about what the state means to you and what is your idea of what a guarantee is. Remember a, a dollar, uh, uh, a dollar bill a Swiss franc, or I guess you don't make single Swiss francs. And every note, every piece of currency is a debt obligation between you and the state. The state is saying, this is your certificate saying that we owe you the equivalent to 10 Swiss francs, right? It's a debt contract. And then you trade that contract, right? You're like, now the state owes you money, <laughs> And, and you give it to them and they give you goods in return or whatever. But it's, it represents the idea of who's lending you, the, who, who you're borrowing the money from. They need to show themselves to be stable, trustworthy, and have a sense of security and stability. Now, the U.S., security and stability is this weirdly imperial, like, like the weight of the institutional facade. It's about power and dominance and everything that you, I don't know, I have a bill sitting around. Everything about it is like bigness, solidity, power, right? And then you look at the Swiss one and it's like some gentle hands kind of moving around and it's like, don't we love science? And this is how far away Jupiter is. And like, you know, like it's this idea of a different um, understanding about what the state represents, what it gives its citizens, what it's a guarantor of, right? Knowledge and, I mean, of course, there's problematic associations too, but it gives this sense that it it is, uh, it's giving you culture, you know, in some way or a, a, a broader base, you know, it, 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 these are its values. And I find that, really interesting the way that a state represents itself to its people through these notes that you just treat as automatic. You don't really see them after a while, but it's a continued message about what it means to be part of a community or part of a citizen subject of a state. What it means to be Swiss keeps being told to you through your money. What it means to be a U.S. citizen keeps being explained in the money. And I just thought that was also interesting to look at the differences. We spoke about it once before, the abstraction of money, 
how we use it and the relation of it to the other things that we don't see anymore, like in the financial system. Is there also any interest in philosophical terms, let's say? Because before you were rather describing the aesthetics and what they convey in a social sense or in a cultural sense. Well, I mean, I, I think that my knowledge of financial history is sort of, it's limited mostly from to the U.S. context. I mean, that's what I've read most about and the British system. Um, so it's fascinating, you know, when you look at the American financial system, you know, 40% of the wealth at the founding of the country was in slaves. And that's really the financial engine of the United States. That's, that's been the monetization of human life. And it was key in early credit relationships when because it was the only form of collateral that could be offered because land in the United States, unlike land in Europe was and land in, in the UK in the British empire, it was uncultivated land. So it was kind of valueless unless you added labor to it. And it wasn't a good collateral guarantor. And what you find in the colonial, um, the colonial government, right? The pre founding of the U S is that slaves were a tool to of financialization that they could borrow against and actually comprised 80% of the loan guarantees that were being used to get companies, you know, like you know, the insurance companies like Lloyd's of London and also to secure credit lines from foreign investors, the best form of collateral was slaves because it was movable. It had a kind of stable market value. They were constantly being traded and it was a very advanced market. They had constant updates and a lot of the early um, twice a day reports on valuation of human beings. So it's really sick. And it also persists to this point where Financial systems, even though human life has no price, it's constantly being monetized. Human life is constantly being um, used as a structure for trading and monetization. It's just sublimated a little bit. And a lot of the tools that we have in modern finance were developed around the international, the triangular trade, the slave trade. And most of the world is subscribed to what is a largely American-European model, especially because of the world wars, where the U.S. imposed certain systems and structures for international trade that became the, the standard formation. So financialization is a whole nother can of worms. I mean, I think who's great on some of this is um, Boltansky and Chiapello's book, New Spirit of Capitalism. It's excellent um, in terms of talking about different forms of monetization and um, the changing character, the way that that uh, capitalism has gone through these different manifestations and how it reacts to resistances and things like that. But there's a lot of books that are good on some of those things. But um, uh I think it's fascinating. I think it's part of the reason why I hate abstractions in general, um, because I think that 
the tendency with abstract systems like the law, like finance, is that people start to treat them like they're real. And they're really just models. Economic exchange is really just a model for how we share goods, what our sense of equity and responsibility to each other in terms of sharing things. Um, Law is very much the same way. But then we start thinking of those classifications that happen through a financial system or an economic market or through a legal system. And we start to treat them as though they're not just descriptive models and they're not just tools, but they're real. And that's where you get terrible problems. That's where you get human suffering. And I always feel like in the application of abstraction to real world conditions, as though, and in that application, you naturalize abstract systems. The result is always human suffering without fail. And so I'm, I'm predisposed for many reasons to dislike abstraction and to think abstraction over applied tends to be, uh, yeah, a source of human suffering, the primary source and justification for human suffering. Thank you, Valid, for the inspiring insights, and thank you all for joining us today. For more information on Valid Beshti's work, I can recommend the book Valid Beshti, Work in Exhibition 2011-220, published by Koenig Books. The book was accompanying the artist's solo exhibitions at Mamco in Geneva and the Kunstmuseum Winterthur. For more information about Valid Beshti's new work in our current group exhibition Notes and Abstraction, please visit our website vfo.ch. The show is running through the end of May 2022. Thank you for joining us today and we will be happy to welcome you in our premises and if you join us for our next podcast.